Good morning. My name is Conrad Morse, and uh, I serve as an elder here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke chapter 11, 37 to 44. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So Jesus went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside only also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. You may be seated. You join me as we pray. God, we thank you for your word. This morning we are asking that in the time that you give us to think about your word, that your Holy Spirit would use the truth of the gospel to change our hearts, that you would bring us to a place of encouragement and conviction, moving us to repent, moving us to trust. And God, we pray that you would make us like our Savior even in these moments today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter, 30, uh, chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, and Conrad read the first section of it there, and in a few minutes we'll read um, the second part of it. The title of the message is in your worship folder on the notes. I don't know if anybody uses those, uh, but Jesus doesn't play your games. And I wanted to, to help out a little bit. You might say, well, gee, that sounds uh, a little confrontational. Wow your problem, Greg. Simmer down. It's much worse than you think. Um, so let's jump into it. Now, uh, some of you might have played this game. There's a game, uh, and it just came out here recently. It's called Monopoly. Has anybody heard of this game? It's a relatively popular game, and a number of families and marriages have been destroyed as a result of playing this game. But one of the things about Monopoly, if you don't know about Monopoly, uh, you're welcome, you know, congratulations. Uh, but if you don't, you can Google it while I'm talking. Uh, but Monopoly, like many games, has, uh, there, there's some, it's called house rules. Now what this means is when you're playing the game, there might be ways in which you sort of customize the game uh, because that's the way you, you wanna, wanna play it. And in fact, many people think the way they play it is actually the rules of the game and they don't realize they're actually playing house rules. So for example, one of the most common house rules uh, with Monopoly is that when you have to pay money by drawing a card or landing on a space, you pay it to the center of the board, and if you land on free parking, uh, then you get all the money that's in the middle of the board. Now, that's not a rule. That's a house rule. That's a, 
uh, in the rules, that's not a thing. You're not supposed to do that. But there's a number of ways you can customize the game. You might change how much money you start with. Uh, one uh, rule that you can do is instead of buying properties at the beginning, all the properties are dealt out randomly among the players. And so all the properties are distributed uh, at, the, at the beginning. Another house rule is if you land right on start, you get double the, uh, the pay uh, that you would normally, I think, normally get $200 with inflation. That's not going to cover anything. That's $200. Might need to update Monopoly. Uh, but if you land right on start, uh, you can uh, uh, collect uh, $200, $400, even more. You're like, man, I've, I, you, have you filled up the note sheet yet with these rules? Now, another house rule is what you can do while you're in jail. Now, the rules say you can do all the normal things other than moving while you're in jail, but you could say uh, if you're customizing it, you can't buy or sell properties while in jail. You can't charge rent while you're in jail. You can't mortgage properties while you're in jail. So there's a number of ways it can be uh, customized. And what we have to understand, especially is how does Monopoly relate to this passage today, well, this is kind of exactly what many of these religious leaders were doing. They sort of had come up with their house rules for how a person lives their life and how they are to uh, indicate that they're following God faithfully. And Jesus comes in and says, I don't play your games. Uh, you, you've created this artificial sense of understanding of how we're to relate to God. And Jesus, as the Savior God, says, I don't play your games. And he's going to very straightforwardly make it clear that he uh, finds those things offensive. And in fact, following these sort of made-up rules endangers a person's soul. Let me say it this way for verses 37 through 44. Jesus doesn't play your games. Frankly, your favorite rules don't matter. Think about whatever your favorite rule is. Your favorite rule... It doesn't matter. You don't get to pick and choose how you are going to stand rightly before God. You don't get to have house rules when it comes to how can I know when I stand before God, everything's okay. You don't get to pick and choose how you stand right before God. Stacking the deck religiously in order to impress others does not give you righteousness and does not give you life. So creating your own sense of how do I look good in front of others, how do I impress others with how religious and faithful I am, does not give you righteousness, does not give you life. You don't get to pick how you stand right before God. Your favorite rules don't matter. Think about it this way. We're going to use some sports metaphors today since the title of the message is Jesus doesn't play your game. So... Um, in the National Basketball Association, this is a professional basketball league where players get paid to play basketball for a living. Fantastic. Good work if you can get it. And uh, during the playoffs, especially during the finals, they hand out the NBA. I don't like doing acronyms. You follow me? NBA stands for National Basketball Association. Stay with me. I'll go slow. The NBA Finals MVP, Most Valuable Player. Now, how do they decide who is the most valuable player? There might be a number of criteria about how somebody is the most valuable player. Maybe it's the person who scores the most points for their team. Should that be the MVP? Maybe it's the person who, who plays the best defense. Maybe it should be the person who keeps the other team's best scorer from scoring very many points. Maybe that person should be the MVP. 
Maybe it should be the best team player, the one who's best at passing the ball and getting assists, getting the ball to the right person so that they could score. So I'm asking you now, this is now an, uh, an NBA debate. Are you ready? What is the right criteria for who should be the MVP? Well, yeah, Diana says the best team player. Well, no, I don't know. I don't know. Your initials are MJ. Your initials are MJ. <laughs> don't get me started, Russ. That, okay, go down the road. Thanks for, okay. For the players, the, the correct answer is whatever I'm best at. If I'm the best scorer, the MVP is the best scorer. If I'm the best defender, then the MVP should go to the best defender. If I'm the best passer, then the MVP should go to the best passer. If I'm the best at sitting on the bench, the MVP should go to that guy. So what happens is the MVP is, as a person, you're thinking it should be whatever I'm the best at. Because what I am, everybody should understand is, is valuable. And this is precisely what's going on religiously in the first century, as well as goes on today, even in a church like ours, is people assume what's most important is that thing which is most important to me. Verse 37, Jesus was talking and a Pharisee invited him to dinner and he went and reclined at a table, which was customary. This was likely a dinner that was attended by the public. That was often the case among teachers. They would have a dining table and the public could listen uh, as the rabbis would discuss and teach things. And the Pharisee was astonished that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Now, we need to cover one thing that's not related to the topic of this. Uh, if you live at home with your mom, and tonight, after church, you go home and you go to the table and your mom asks you, did you wash your hands? It is not advised for you to answer, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the dish. I would not recommend doing that at all. In fact, I would strongly suggest you not. This washing is not the washing we might think of where before a meal you wash your hands to ensure you're not eating bacteria or whatever you might have touched prior to coming to the meal. This was a ceremonial washing. This was a religious activity where Pharisees would indicate they were faithful Pharisees keeping themselves ceremonially pure so they could eat their ceremonially clean meal. Jesus didn't fail to wash his hands because he forgot or because he figured he hadn't touched anything dirty. Jesus on purpose didn't wash his hands because he is saying, I don't need to do your routine to be ceremonially clean. So on purpose, he doesn't do this to set the tone. Their charge is that if you don't follow with the right routines, the routines we say ought to be followed, then you cannot consider yourself an upstanding, faithful follower of God. And so Jesus confronts them and says, your hands can be clean all day long, but look what he, how he describes their heart. Inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. If you had a, a dirty dish in your sink and it was full of food that had dried to the inside of that dish because he hadn't done the dishes since the morning. If you picked up that dish and walked, wiped out the outside of the dish only and put it in the cupboard, you would have no interest in using that dish 
Because the primary area that you want to have clean is the inside of it, because that's where the food is going to be. And this is how Jesus is describing the Pharisees. You just try to dress up the outside of your life so people are impressed with you. Inside, though, you are full of greed and wickedness. You are, on the inside, corrupt. Greed here is a description of their desire for an increasing amount of financial resources and to impress others and to fill their life with luxury. And this was well known that the Pharisees as religious leaders were seeking more and more uh, money. They were uh, not only greedy on the inside, but we know that this is how they operated. They assumed that if they were blessed by God, they should have lots of money. And so therefore, one of the ways they impressed people religiously was to be showy about how much uh, money they had. So they're full of greed and they're full of wickedness. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 40, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He is saying here that God made you. God made all people. And God made the outside of who you are. He's talking here in some sense about the physical part of us, that part of us that is our body. And Jesus is saying, did God also make your soul? Did God also make your person? What's the answer? Yes. So, Pharisees, why are you so concerned about acting religiously merely with your body and failing to want your person, your very soul, to be made uh, the way God wants it to be made? You have, in, in fact, Jesus might argue this, you have ignored the most important thing, the condition of your soul it is, itself. In fact, Jesus says this, Give as alms those things that are within. He's saying, be charitable. Have your inside changed. Become the kind of person God wants you to be, and then the outside will follow suit. That's what he says in verse 41. Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean. He's saying here, you don't start from the outside and behave well, hoping it will change who you are on the inside. What Jesus is saying, you need your heart changed, and that will by virtue change how you behave on the outside. Verse 42, we get to some woes. There are three woes. Here we go. Woe to you Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and every herb. So this was a common practice. They would get the produce from their gardens. He's not merely calling them cheap and not generous, but he is a little. So they would take some of their garden herbs that they had harvested, and they would give some of that to the temple. And that was customary. That was normal. Uh, the assumption would be they were also tithing from their other uh, uh, harvests. But what he is saying is you're, you're, you're very particular to make sure you don't just merely tithe on, your, on, on the major harvest. You're also, when you go out in the garden to get some, some mint and clip it and put it in your, your dish, well, you know, I should set some aside for the priest at the temple. He says, listen... You, you take the time to be very scrupulous about your, your, your giving of your herbs, but don't neglect justice and the love of God. These things you should do without neglecting the first thing. So they're picking and choosing. They're saying, well, look, we're going to make sure we even donate. When I, uh, could you imagine you're making lunch this afternoon, you're putting a little dill on your whatever you're eating, whatever you put dill on. So you're putting it on there. So you know what? Put a little aside for the church. You know, and let me just say this. Please don't do that. We don't. 
if you start sending me herbs, I mean, you know, you do, you do what the Lord moves, and if you want to send it some dill, you know, we'll put it to good use. And so that's what they were doing. And Jesus said, well, yeah, sure, keep doing that. Keep the things of God in mind. That's a, that's a good thing to do. Have a heart. But also, don't neglect justice and the love of God. You've missed the point by choosing the thing that you're good at and ignoring the thing that, that is, speaks to the inner person. Look what it says in Micah chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. They should have known these verses as Pharisees. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He's talking about offerings here. Will God be impressed if you, if you brought to the temple a thousand rams? Would, would God be impressed if you brought as an offering ten thousands rivers of oil? Could you imagine rafting the Rogue River and discovering it's olive oil? It's disgusting. But what if you donated that much olive oil, which it was customary to donate oil to the tabernacle, to the temple? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Look how desperate he's trying to seek peace with God. Shall I give my firstborn as a sacrifice? The answer, of course, is no. The Bible never requires that. Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what's good. Okay, that's good. He's going to tell us what we ought to do. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. These are attributes of the inner person, though. Nobody's impressed with the attributes of the inner person. Who's going to be impressed with me if I love God in my heart? I need people to be impressed with me. And that's where the Pharisees were at. They were picking the rules. They were setting up the house rules so that people would be impressed with them instead of having their heart fit to the purposes of God. Love God. Love your neighbor. Show compassion. Have humble uh, service to uh, God and to the people around you. Show kindness. Be a person of generosity. These are fundamentally attributes of the heart that show up in how life is lived. And Jesus is saying, your favorite rules don't matter. What matters is the condition of your heart. Okay, let's go back to uh, Luke chapter 11. Look with me at, let's see, verse 43. Next, woe. Woe to you Pharisees. You love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So what they want is they want people to recognize, number one, that they've created the rule system. Number two, they're best at following the rules. And so they want everybody around them to honor them and recognize them for their ability to follow closely their made-up game. And we have to understand, in the Bible, nowhere in Scripture are we called to seek our own glory. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to seek our own glory. In fact, the Bible in Philippians chapter 2 calls us to model our lives after Jesus, who had glory by humbling himself to the cross. In fact, what we are encouraged to do is understand that God in his own way determines how in which he is going to bestow honor and how he is going to uh, bestow glory depending on his purposes and his will. He can determine who ought to be king and who ought to be the servant. Uh, Think about King David. What was his job before being king? Shepherd. That's what the psalm says. He says he was 
often the shepherd, complete, off in the field, tending sheep, completely ignored. When the prophet Samuel showed up to anoint one of uh, his brothers as king, what did they call David in? No. Why would David be king? He's a pansy. I don't know why they thought he was a pansy. He killed bears and lions. But they, no, he would never be king, and God will see fit according to his purposes and according to his own plan to bestow honor and glory. The Pharisees would have none of that. No, no, no. I will determine who will honor me, and who will that be? Everybody. And why will they honor me? Because I'm going to create a rule system, a religious system, and I'm the best at it so that people will bestow their honor and their glory to me. Look at verse 44. Woe to you. You are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What he is saying here is while you feel like your religious leaders and you are following closely a standard of morality, in fact, you lead to death. Back in those days, especially in Israel in the first century, if you were to touch a grave, you would be considered unclean and you wouldn't be able to go to the temple to worship. And so graves were typically marked very clearly so that you wouldn't accidentally walk on a grave and become ceremonially unclean, because that would be a problem if you were planning to go to the temple, especially if it was a, a feast that was coming up, it's feasts of tabernacles or Passover or something, you really want to go to the temple. Well, you couldn't, because you stepped on a grave, some moron forgot to paint white. You might even send the guy a sternly worded letter. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're like those graves. People come to you and they think they're going to find hope in life, but in fact, you lead them to uncleanness. And in fact, he's saying, you're the doorway to hell. That's terrible. So while people were following these Pharisees and while they wanted to be honored, in fact, they were leading others to death. How is it that a Pharisee could lead others to death? To death. Well, here's my uh, theory, and, and it's okay if you want to disagree with me, because I always say, you're, you're totally okay with me if you want to be wrong. Yeah, now, you may not uh, believe this, but I, I fundamentally believe this is absolutely true about human nature. We love the idea of just do A, B, C, and you're good. We love that idea. So if I do A, if I go to church, read my Bible a couple of minutes a day, I pray... So if I do A, B, and C, and I square that off, okay, I've got that handled, so the rest of my life I get to do whatever I want, right? Because I handled the religious bit. And in fact, maybe I'll even go over the top and, and read my Bible for 20 minutes a day. Or maybe I'll actually pray for somebody else and not merely for myself. So now I'm really, really going for it. And, and because what's great about religious systems is I can create a framework by which here is my religious life. I show up for church on Sunday. I, I pray before a meal. I take my Bible to work and set it on my desk. And I accomplish, I check these boxes because then Friday night I can do whatever I want. That's the idea of religion is at the end of the day, I want my inner person to be mine. And so I want a system by which I get to be me. I get to be whatever I want. What's a manageable system where I get to still have my life? And Jesus says, I want your whole life. Now, your system's dumb. Number one, you set the bar pretty low. You, you, we, we tend to set the, even the Pharisees set the bar 
pretty low. And this is why it's appealing. I can keep my inner life, my inner thoughts, my heart, my motivations the way I want them because I can show people, no, I'm a good guy. I follow the rules. There's another reason why religious systems are appealing. It has less to do, uh, more to do actually with, with uh, systems of power, and it's this. It is much easier to get people to do what you want if you can convince them, if you don't do what I say, you go to hell. Now, that's a lot of power. You got to do what I say. You got to jump when I say jump. You got to do this. You got to do that. And if you don't follow my rules, God won't like you, and you're going to be consigned into eternity without him forever. And so now, therefore, all of a sudden, as a, as a religious leader, a person has a tremendous amount of power over individuals. And in fact, the Pharisees would have said this the same way modern religious leaders would. Well, if we don't help keep people in control, this, this, look, we're going to lose the culture. It's getting away. You, you, can you imagine what people would do if you didn't give them rules? And Jesus answered, they might just worship God. And Jesus said, your rules don't matter. You're picking and choosing your favorite rules to try and give yourself an out to live the way you want on the inside, and secondly, to try and control others. And Jesus says, I'm not going to play your game. Woe to you. Jesus was extraordinarily offended by it. These religious leaders had no interest in changing their heart. They just wanted to create a system by which they could live their life the way they wanted and put their religious obligation into a box. The Pharisees' rules God didn't recognize, and so Jesus let him know that. Another group of people were there, some lawyers. Don't boo. Just want to say it before anybody did. They're lawyers. We might also call them scribes. How are the Pharisees and scribes different? There's some overlap between them. Uh, the scribes really are religious experts. What they would have done is known the Old Testament really, really well, but they would have been really good at, at helping people understand how to apply the Old Testament to their life. Now, they would have been really, really good at doing it the way they wanted, and so what people would do is they would come to them and say, hey, Mr. Scribe, yeah, well, I was thinking about taking the elevator on Sabbath. Is that cool? Like, he said, no, actually pushing the buttons work, so you're going to have to take the stairs. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't know, Mr. Scribe, it seems like the stairs are more work. Yep, no, that's the way that goes. No elevators on uh, the Sabbath. Okay, you're the scribe. This doesn't make any sense at all, but okay, you're the scribe. And that, so that's how these scribes work. So while the Pharisees would create rules that, that fit the way they wanted their life to live, these scribes would determine what it looks like to win the game. So Jesus doesn't play your games. Pharisees, what we says is your favorite rules don't matter. Second thing for the scribes is this, verses 45 through 54 your scoreboard doesn't matter. Your rules don't matter. This little game, this little religious game you're playing, Pharisees, your, your rules don't matter. Scribes, your scoreboard, that how you're keeping score doesn't matter. You're doing it wrong. And let me explain that to you. Look at verse 45. We're going to read uh, verses 45 through 54, but let me just look at verse 45. One of the lawyers, scribes, answered him, that is, of course, Jesus, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us, also, I love this verse so much. Jesus' response was, oh, gee, I didn't know. I didn't mean to cause offense. No, he didn't say that. He's like, I'm just getting started. Jesus was intending to cause offense. Verse 46, woe to you lawyers. 
You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your father, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard, to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. One famous sports commentator said it this way about uh, athletic competition, is at the end of the day, how do you know who won? You look at the scoreboard. I don't want to overcomplicate it. Generally, and golf being the exception, the one with the most points wins, right? So, and, and this commentator made this comment because often after an athletic contest, they would interview a player or a coach, and, and the player or coach would say, you know what's great about the team today is, is we followed our game plan and, and everybody executed on their job, and, and the reality is we got some bad calls, got some bad calls going there, and, and if you really look at it, the team we were playing, they come from a big market, New York, so they got much more, uh, a much better ability to recruit the best players. Listen, you could say stuff all day long, the person with the most points wins, right? This is the way it is. That's, that's always the way it is. At the end of the day, the scoreboard wins. Now, here's the thing. Knowing God is not a competition, and it certainly isn't a competition where we or scribes get to decide how the score is kept. I don't know how you keep score in your life about what it means to follow God. I don't know how you're keeping score, but let me just gently encourage you. Your pretend spiritual score doesn't matter. I don't, I don't know how you woke up this morning and decided you, with, you and God were okay or not, but your pretend scorecard doesn't matter. And that's what Jesus is going to say to these scribes. The lawyers were insulted, and Jesus was uh, intending to do just that. Look at verse 46. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you won't even help them. Woe to you, lawyers. Here's what the lawyers would do, is they would tell somebody, listen, on the Sabbath day, you can only carry 10 pounds of sticks, and you can only carry 10 pounds of sticks a half a mile. I'm making the numbers up. I don't know, but it would be something like this. And, you know, if you carried 11 pounds of sticks... You're out of luck. You lose. You're not spiritual. You're a lame You might be going to eternal damnation because you carried half a pound too many sticks, a quarter mile too far. And, and Jesus really was confronting these guys for two reasons. Number one, they just give them the rule and, don't, and then don't provide any assistance to figure it out. They don't tell them, well, here's what you want to do is all week long, if you've got to move sticks, move a quarter pound each day. Then by the time you get to Sabbath, all your stick moving's done. It's pretty handy. But it gets worse. What the scribes would do is something like this. 
All of a sudden, they're walking down the street, and they got a cart with two tons of sticks on it. He said, well, what are you doing, scribe? He goes, well, you got to actually know the whole rule book. I hired a Gentile with a Gentile ox. He can haul him. I'm going to pay him the next day so it doesn't count. So it's pretty cool. So what the scribes would do is they had all these loopholes where the rules that they would foist on the others didn't apply to them. And, of course, they would fail to tell the others about the loopholes. And then even if the others did know about the loopholes, they'd say, you sort of have to be a certain rank to have that loophole apply. So good luck with that little camper hauling your 10 pounds of sticks half a mile. That doesn't seem fair, does it? No, it seems lame. And that's exactly Jesus' point. Uh, listen, lawyers, you, have no, you don't understand what God is up to. You've created this scorecard for what it means to be, have spiritual vitality. And number one, it's destroying people. And secondly, it just doesn't matter. You've just made stuff up. Not only that, and you're not even helping anybody. You're making people's life more difficult. Verse 47, the second woe for the scribes. You build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So what Jesus is saying to these is, you want to finish the job your fathers started, which is killing the prophets that God has sent. Let's look quickly at Luke chapter 24, verse 27. We'll be there because we're working our way through the book of Luke. We'll be there the day Jesus returns probably. Luke 24, 27 says this, Jesus, this is on the road to Emmaus, you can read the whole chapter later, he was talking to two disciples, and he says this, beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses, and all the prophets, okay, pretty much the Old Testament, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, we're talking about the Old Testament, things concerning who? Himself. If you want to read about Jesus, read your Old Testament. That's what he's saying. He starts with Moses, goes all the way through the prophets, and says, let me show you everything about myself from the prophets. So the scribes and the Pharisees, by rejecting Jesus, are agreeing that they would murder the prophets just the way the Old Testament prophets were murdered. Two, of, two prophets are mentioned there in Luke uh, 11. Uh, let me... I, See, where's Abel and Zechariah? Verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar, he says, I will charge against this generation all of those prophets. So Abel, we all know who Abel, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain brought a sacrifice God didn't like. Abel brought a sacrifice God did like. Cain murdered Abel. Zechariah, he was a prophet, son of the high priest, and one of the kings of Judah, Joash, murdered him because he said something offensive like, you're not following God. And so this king, Joash, had Zechariah stoned in front of him. And what Jesus is saying to this religious generation is, I will hold to you, I will hold you responsible for the deaths of Abel, for the deaths of Zechariah, for the deaths of Isaiah, for the death of Ezekiel, for Jeremiah getting thrown in his cistern, all of everything that everybody did to reject the prophets of God, you were doing now by rejecting the one that is culminating these prophets, that is Christ. And he's saying, by rejecting Christ, you consent to all the evil deeds of your, your father. So woe to you. They would rebuild these tombs 
of the prophets to, to look impressive. Look, we've rebuilt Elijah's tomb. Look how great this work is. And Jesus says, no, you think you're honoring Elijah. You're just confirming you agree you wish he was dead. One commentator said it this way. The only prophet these guys liked were dead prophets because they don't say much. A dead prophet is not going to tell you what you're doing wrong. Jesus is going to tell them precisely what was going on in their life. And of course, as you can see, they didn't like it. Jesus says something else is coming. Look at verse 47. Let's back up just a little bit. Um, Verse 49. Look at verse 49. Therefore, the wisdom of God has said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. When's that going to happen? Well, this is the thing. Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote two books of the Bible. Which are they? Luke and Acts. Originally, they were just one book, Luke-Acts. And see here we have some foreshadowing coming up. The, the disciple James is going to be murdered in Jerusalem. Stephen is going to be stoned to death. This is precisely what's going to happen. Jesus is saying, listen, it's the wisdom of God to continue to send you the truth of the gospel, and you are going to do precisely what your fathers always did, which is murder the prophets who were sent to you. Their deaths and all the deaths of martyrs beforehand will be counted against that generation who rejects Christ. Okay, let's look at the final woe to the lawyers, the scribes. Woe to you lawyers. This is verse 52. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. What is the key to knowledge? What is the key to understanding God? You have to have righteousness. You have to be able to stand before God righteous, never having sinned, always worshiping God. Who's done that? Nobody. So the only way, the key to knowledge, the key to relationship with God is to have the righteousness of God himself given to us. And the way that it's done is by trusting Jesus, who on the cross pays for the penalty of our sin. So when we trust him, his righteousness is given to us. So what's the scorecard? How do I know if I can righteously stand before God? If I have Jesus' righteousness, I can stand before God. How do I get Jesus' righteousness? By trusting that what he did on the cross was for me. That I needed it because I'm a sinner and because he will gladly give me his righteousness when I trust him. Because the scribes and Pharisees are rejecting Christ, they have no way to lead anyone to life and hope. They only have the ability to lead people to despair. They didn't want God, they didn't want Jesus, and they didn't want others to have him either. What is God like? I want just one quick uh, uh, verse. I always say that, one quick verse. It means nothing, right? We're, we're clear on that? One very lengthy detour. Exodus 34 is really important to understand about God and to understand, most importantly, that what has been true about God has always been true about God. Really, really important to understand that Old Testament God and New Testament God same guy, right? We understand this? And, and even more so, God wasn't in a bad mood in the Old Testament and then like had some coffee or got a nap and all of a sudden the New Testament starts and now all of a sudden he's chipper and happy. He's giving away righteousness. It's not. No, same guy, same way, whole time. In fact, I want to show you 
a good example of this. In, in Exodus chapter 34, in verse 5, God is going to make himself known to Moses. Really important to understand when this happens. This happens right after the people of Israel at the foot of the mountain worshiped the golden calf. Okay? So God is on the mountain in fire, blazing like a furnace, right there. It's like, oh, there it is, Mount McLaughlin, on fire. Let's go down to the base of Mount McLaughlin and worship an idol. It makes no sense. That's what they did. God then is going to make himself known to Moses. Why do I say that? If there was any time in the Old Testament God should be in a bad mood, this is it, right? Let's look what he says, verse 5 of Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Incredible. God tells Moses his name. Verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. Listen, listen. This is what God said to Moses in that moment. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God is just simply saying, he forgives. You know, what about these children who are, are uh, called guilty? Were these the ones who didn't want to be forgiven? But if you want to be forgiven, you just go to God and say, hey, can I be forgiven? And what's he going to say? Yeah, okay, yeah, I can do that. Why? Because that's what he's like. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, the reason God was like that in this case is because the Israelites had figured it out. They, they sort of repented. They felt really bad about what they did. And so because they felt really bad about it, God was motivated uh, to forgive them because it seemed like they were really sad, right? No, 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 that's not them. Look at verse 9. Moses says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is what Moses is saying. God, we really need you to go with us and forgive us, and you need to be aware why. Nothing's changed. Same crew. Have you read Exodus? This is only the first of many missteps. God forgives you even though he knows you're going to sin later. You think he only forgives you because you feel bad. And you think, you think he only forgives you because you, you've tried really hard to, to stop doing it. God forgives you. Why? He's always been a forgiving God. That's what he does. And here you have these Pharisees and scribes saying... The way you win with God is to follow these ridiculous rules we're going to list. Is that the same as a forgiving God? No, that's a, a tyrant God. They don't even believe God in the Bible. And then you've got the, the scribes, the lawyers come, and they say, the only way you can know God is if you achieve the score we think you ought to achieve. We're going to tell you what it looks like to be right before God. What do you do to be right before God? You show up and say, God, will you forgive me? I know what you're like. I've read about it in the Old Testament. You forgive people. You're always forgiving people. Jesus doesn't play your religious games. Your favorite rules don't matter. And your scoreboard doesn't matter. Uh, three, three or four ideas and then we're going to close. 
First question I have for you, what religious stuff are you good at? Think about it. Maybe you've got some religious stuff you're really good at. Maybe you're really nice to people. I'm lousy at that. Maybe you're very generous. You like to give away stuff and money and time. You're a very generous kind of person. Uh, maybe you enjoy really engaging with people, volunteering. You're, you're really good at going out and finding what the good things that need to be done and, and saying, you know what, I'm going to get after it. I'm going to get it done. Maybe you're the kind of person that stays really calm in stressful situations. You're, you don't get angry when others might normally get angry. Maybe you're, you're good at, at the clean living. You don't smoke, drink, or chew, or spend time with girls who do, I guess. I don't know what it is. You might have something in your head. You know what? I got this Christianity thing figured out because I'm really good at reading my Bible. I'm pretty smart. Maybe you're really good at reading Christian books. There isn't a Christian book you haven't read. Maybe you even know some of the really uh, remote and, and not often visited theological websites where they really use big fancy theological terms, and you read those, and, and you sometimes even reply with sternly worded theological answers in the comments. You're like, I'm really good at that. I'm, I'm smart. I'm philosophical. The question is, whatever you look at in your life that you're really good at, do you, have you decided that the people who aren't as good at that thing aren't good Christians? That's what happens. Is there something that you're just wired a particular way, and there's some things that for you, you, they're just, you, can, you can do it. You can, you can attend church like nobody's business. You can read the Bible. You can pray. You can, uh, you can not say the swears, whatever it is for you. And somebody else who's not as good as you in that particular area, you decide they're not very good at being a Christian. We all do that. That's what we do because we create these House rules. Good Christians live Christianity the way I do it. And what does Jesus say to that? Woe to you Pharisees, that you would take your house rules and discourage somebody else's walk with me because you've decided they have to fit your view of what a righteous person looks like. Who is righteous in the eyes of God? Those who have trusted Jesus. And your little rules don't matter. Okay, another thing uh, on rules. Um, some rules we like because they, they allow us to uh, control uh, others. I'm just going to pick on one, and uh, here we go. Some people like the you can't get divorced rule because it means I can be a jerk to my spouse and they can't leave me. You think I'm kidding. If I, could, if I wish I could count on one hand the times I've, I've heard that. Well, at least they can't leave me. You're a jerk, bro. I don't know how to say it anymore. I'm, I'm not even trying to be nice. If you're using religious rules to shoehorn somebody into your life to make them live the way you want them to live, woe to you Pharisees. Using rules to control others is not Jesus-y at all. That's pharisaical. It's lawyerish. It leads people to condemnation. We'll just do the one. We'll move on. Jesus wants something from you that's actually foundationally more difficult than the Pharisees and scribes could handle. He wants holiness and righteousness as a function of your inner person, inner transformation, where the things that you do in your life on the outside that are right and good occur because what's going on inside 
is right and good. And what we have to understand about that is that is impossible for you to make yourself right on the inside so that you can do things right on the outside. The only way for that to happen is for Jesus to give you his righteousness and transform you from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what actual relationship with God is about. It's not about figuring out what are the 10 rules I need to do to keep my nose clean. The question is, what does it look like for me to look like Jesus on the inside where nobody can see? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28 says this. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. How many people get to brag in front of God? It's a small number. It's zero. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us and for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, and it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. You are made righteous because Jesus makes you righteous by faith. Now, some of us got saved a while ago, and of the course of our Christian life, we've done some stuff. You learned how to read your Bible. You learned how to uh, uh, encourage others. You learned how to serve others with humility. You learned how to, to pray. Who did that? Give you a hint. It wasn't you. You don't even get to brag to Jesus about how good you handled the life he gave you. When you get to heaven and you stand before God and you receive reward because you happen to have been faithful in a few areas in your life, you will discover in that moment the only reason you did is because Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, decided to help you there. We don't even get to claim bragging rights for our Christian life. It's all Jesus, all day. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 29, we'll close this with, with this one, and I'm serious. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So who, how, how much higher of a rank can you get in, in religious world other than sons of God? Is there a higher rank that I'm missing? No. So in Christ, by faith, you are sons of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heir according to the promise. When we put our faith in Christ, we put on Christ as a garment. In the Old Testament, there was a story about uh, Jacob, and he was going to steal his brother Esau's birthright. You remember this story? And he, he got disguised. He put on Esau's clothes, and then he put on hair, like, like sheep hair. If you, I've told you this before. Just remember, when you imagine Jacob going into Isaac, he, he looked like Chewbacca, <laughs> right? And then Isaac wasn't convinced. He's like, okay, you, you brought me food like, like Esau, but, but you, I don't know, you sound kind of like Jacob. And here's the thing. And then when he came near to bless him, what's it say? He, he smelled the clothes. Now, if you love someone and you spend time closely with them, you know exactly what their clothes smell like. And there's something about that smell that hits us right in our heart, isn't there? Right? You smell like, oh, I know, I know what that is. I know what that perfume is. I know what shampoo that is. And that smell 
all of a sudden moves us. Oh, we're moved with affection. And that's what happened to Isaac as he smelled Esau's clothes worn by Jacob. And what Galatians says is we go in to the presence of God wearing Jesus as our clothing and the father comes near and what does he do? He catches wind of his son and gives us his blessing. Not as a matter of theological law, but because he's moved to. He smells Jesus' scent clinging to us and says, I want to bless you. He's moved to do it. If God's treating us that way, don't come in here and saddle us with your lame rules. We don't need them. You don't need them. Woe to you Pharisees that would take from us that blessing and tell us we got to follow your rules. No, thank you. Jesus doesn't play your games. Your favorite rules don't matter. Your scoreboard doesn't matter. God, we thank you for the grace and kindness that you have shown us in Christ. God, would you forgive us, those of us here who have been really honestly religious people for a long time. It is so easy to fall into habits of trying to impress you and others with our religious way of living. Would you forgive us, God? Would you forgive us of taking lightly the blessing that Jesus has made us righteous? Would you forgive us the way in which we have discouraged others by convincing them they don't measure up because they don't live their life the way we do? God, would you forgive us when we have communicated to the world around us that righteousness isn't from Jesus, righteousness is from being religious? God, would you allow us by your grace to once again enjoy the blessing of having relationship that comes from the Lamb of God. God, I would pray for those who are here today who don't know you. Many people, maybe even in this room, have not put their faith in you because they've been hurt by religious people. I pray in this moment, God, you might open their eyes to what you were like. You were a father who forgives and have provided righteousness through your own son, Jesus. I pray that in this moment you would give them faith to believe. We thank you for how much you love us, and we can't wait till you come back. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song?